How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to give answers, I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming The church is the most vocal political voice against immigration. Some churches still don't believe that worship was the actual thing. Do you understand how ridiculous that is when the majority of people on the church end up going to hell? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the culture is moving. It seems like so much of the church is moving. Anti-critical thinking, homophobic, too narrow, judgmental, disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world. <sighs> the church needs therapy. Welcome to the newest episode of The Church Needs Therapy. And today is our very, very special guest, Brian McLaren. He is our set. He's the second person who's been on here twice. Brandon Robertson was on here twice already. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. And the first time Brian was on, I did a more standard intro. You know, I talk about accolades, accomplishments, books, all the things that the people I have on here do. And so since I've already done that, I'm going to do a different kind of intro today that Brian will be surprised by as well, that I'm sure some of my own words I'll be surprised by. And here's what I will say as I introduce Brian. You know, Will Ken Wilbur says that the truth of a spiritual statement is not just in the objective content of the speaker, it's in the subjective state of the speaker. So what that means is the truth of a spiritual statement coming from somebody is not just is what they're saying true. It is what is the degree to which that thing has been directly actualized for them. So it's not just is what they're saying true. It's how much do they actually know that for themselves? That is why so often we can hear would be gurus, teachers, authoritative voices on things say something that we agree with. And we say, it's not that I disagree with that, but I feel like your life actually disagrees with what you just said, because I just, I sense the gravity of your life does not actually know for yourself that which you're saying so eloquently here. And I feel like that's why there's a disconnect with us and teachers and would-be folks so often, because you're like, that's a profound statement. It's a great one-liner. I just don't know if you have become that which you are saying you believe, right? Are we living out that which we have learned? That is the journey for me, for spiritual teachers and guides. And you can feel the gravity of people who are there. Here's why I say that intro. From my perspective, from the limited but meaningful interactions Brian and I have had, from being a supporter of me as a first time author, you know, writing, I think my first endorsement and seeing his life from a distance the past 20 years or so, Brian is one of the few people who can say some of the most profound things spiritually. And from my perspective, some of the most evolved things spiritually, when we look at who's at the leading edge of consciousness, especially as Christians right now, he's one of the few people who can say those things and say, and I think his life is actually there. I think he has become that which he's inviting us to believe or consider. I think his heart and his mind and his body are aligned in a way which we would call integrity. I think the profundity of the visions he's sharing from a few, from the leading tip 
of evolution from this future I think humanity's moving towards. I hear him and I say the things he says, I believe he actually is. Although we all do this imperfectly, he would say that I'm sure as well. We all, that, that does not mean we're not making mistakes along the way, but it is a gift to have a person say things. And when they say it, there's this resonance within them that aligns and a resonance within you that you think they are. So he's one of those few voices I would trust and feel that from. And I hope the people listening in, I hope those words mean something. So when he's on saying things to me, they take on a different gravity than a lot of things that we hear day to day. So with that said, Brian, so grateful to have you on, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Well, listen, that's super kind and encouraging and nice of you to say, and I sure hope that we are on this evolutionary path and that we're going to keep making progress because uh, we live in uh, dangerous and challenging times and a moment. We, we, we are not living in a boring moment, are we? Mm. <laughs> we're, we're in a very exciting, uh, challenging time. Yes, definitely. When I, when I speak to people and they bring things up and, you know, I don't want to speak negatively about somebody publicly or it could be any, or I don't know them well enough. And they, they bring something up. I'll say, yeah, they're definitely unique. Cause it's a value neutral <laughs> statement that allows me to say a lot. And so uh, one way to say that we are definitely living in unique times, unique times. We are right. very, very unique. And I wanted to start off with a different question before we get into the book. So for the listeners, Brian's new book, Do I Stay Christian? A Guide for the Doubters, the Disappointed, and the Disillusioned. Coming out, what's the date that it's actually out, Brian? May May 24th. Yeah, May soon. 24th. So yeah, well, but what that no, means is far from your, your book coming out. Yeah. <laughs> there's an exciting seven to eight day period, May 24th, Brian McLaren, May 31st, Kevin Sweeney. I mean... T- this is going to be a there great summer for those for those who are looking ahead. And, you know, a part of not just the, the content and the work you're doing, but there's the actual work of writing itself. And there's people who tune in here who are probably creatives, are producing works of art, are creating culture, are creating as a general part of their life, as a natural part of their life. And you know, the process itself, like one thing I say in my own book is the product is for others, but the process is for you. Yes. Yes. So it's yes. the life is in the making, the joy is in the yes. creating itself for us. Right. You know, you yes. have to learn to fall in love with that because the product is like, once it's gone, oh. it's gone. We're doing something else. You know, That's right. you're talking about books you wrote 18 months ago or two years ago, and you're already yeah. two books in or whatever. So can you answer what for you when, you know, you've, you've done the research or the work and you're actually ready to sit down and write and you're in that part of the process or, or any other part, what are, what does that routine look like? What does that schedule look like? Cause sometimes people may not consider that some of the most profound creatives actually have very not rigid in a negative way, but very disciplined schedules. Like I write from this time to this time I do this. So when you're in that stage of writing, what would a day look like? When are you doing it? How much time do you give to it? When do you step away? So, I mean, I'm, I'm interested too, to get a glimpse of that. Yeah. Well, uh, 
Uh, Kevin, I was a college writing teacher. I was an English teacher and I taught a lot of both freshman composition and technical writing and that sort of thing. So I've thought about this a lot and everybody writes differently. I act, I am one of those people. I love writing. I love sitting down at my computer. I love editing. I love the whole process. Um, and so when I'm in the writing zone, when it's time to write, uh, my favorite thing is to start early, um, get up, have a cup of coffee, sit down. And I, when I get in the groove, the hours fly by. So literally I might sit at my desk at seven 30 and I might still be working at 10 at night. Um, and, and because once I'm sort of in that z zone, you know, I I'm trying to, yeah, it, it just, it's delight. It's, it's, I mean, sometimes it's painful. I'm trying to wrestle through something, but uh, th there's a real kind of intensity that r really uh, carries me. Um, when I'm traveling, uh, I, I also love to write, but usually, um, you know, by that time I have a pretty good feel for the shape of the, the book. And so I might be working on a particular chapter and I'm the kind of person I get to the airport, I open my computer. I got 20 minutes before the plane takes off and I'm, in. And then as soon as <laughs> that we hit 10,000 feet, I'm back in. And uh, so what that means in terms of discipline for me is that I don't really have to discipline myself to write because I love it so much. Mm. I have to discipline myself not to do other things. And, mm. and one of the things that that means for me usually is not answering emails. I just have to say, you know, for the next day or two, I'm going to let my inbox fill up because uh, the juice that it takes me to the mm. creative energy to write can easily be dissipated by running off in 10 or 15 other directions. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. That I think for the writing and creative process as a whole, you know, people, like when you said everybody's unique, it's, it's the unique process of discovering. Yes, of course there's general wisdom you're going to get from other people, but mm -hmm. it's paying attention to your own bio rhythms, the own things yeah. that works for you. And for some people like, when you say early morning or like myself, I know my, my early morning energy is the best creative energy yeah. I will have that, yeah. you know, seven 30. I mean, when I was writing this first book, which Brian was my first endorser of, I'm gonna keep saying that I had the, and it was during the height of COVID, you know, kids are home. <laughs> I have like a one and a three-year-old at the time. And I'm like, I wake up at five 40 I get my coffee and food, basically. I would probably spend time in silence. And then I have from 6.40 until 10.20 when I get yeah. the kids, when my wife's going to see clients. And I'm like, that's it's okay because that's my best window. After that, I'll just kind of sit around and not do as much. So I think yeah. also for me, having the self-imposed time limits. Yes, yes, yes. I was and and really seeing those as a structure. I was just actually on the phone yesterday with my friend Phil, who you were actually on Phil and Jen's podcast recently. I, I love their podcast. It was so yeah. nice to meet them. Yeah, awesome people. Some of our best friends, my wife and I. And I I talked to him. I don't remember where I first came across this idea. Um, but you know, it's the cosmos comes before creativity, even in the Genesis mm -hmm. story. There is the proper structure, the environment, the universe, and that beautiful poem. So there's the environment, and then life starts getting cultivated yeah. when the when the proper environment. And I think that's so true creatively as well as yes, what yes, yes. is that best environment for you, you know, when you're doing yeah. it. And so 
the morning, this window. It's not, I'm going to write just when I feel inspired. No, that's a discipline I have to sit down and do that every single day. And when you do, when you, when you know the process is for you, I'm like, I look forward to that. And I'm thinking about that. And I'm, th- I'm thinking about when I'm done with this other thing to go back to that. So <laughs> yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Cause this I, is, I, I, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, I'll just mention two other things about my own writing process th- that could be the opposite for a lot of people. But if I am having trouble concentrating, if I go to a place with a lot of distractions, I actually concentrate better. Like if I go to a mm. coffee shop or something, I have to shut out the distractions. That might be why, you know, writing on a plane works well for me. Mm. I shut out the distractions and yeah. And, and, and the time just flies by the one exception mm. to that is if I'm, I'm in a research mode. Mm. Um, and uh, very often if I know I'm going into an area where I need to do some uh, more research, I'll, order or find the books. Uh, and I'll, I'll literally, if I, they're physical books, I have a pile of them on my desk, or if they're digital, I'll have them on my computer or another device. And, um, yeah. And, and when I need that time to immerse myself in research, I, 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 can't have distractions then that's when i've really i've, I've really got to have quiet that's so funny because you would think that the research part could be done a little bit easier with like a noisy environment because <laughs> the writing's so seemingly like focused as a single stream so again that's the uniqueness. everybody's different yeah everybody's totally different. that's right yeah so the the new book do i stay christian what is before the content before all that there's oftentimes with the larger creative project, it could be a sermon, a teaching, it could be a book, it could be a lot of things, the spark or the engine that then drives the rest of it. Where is that engine? Is that something you've been thinking about writing for a long time? Was it just along the flow of the other books? Where's the real initial catalyst for like, oh, this is the next mm. book that I'm doing? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, one way to say it is that pain is very often a catalyst, Uh, not always, but often it's a catalyst. And what I have experienced both in my own life, but I've heard it being voiced by more and more people, especially in the last several years where it feels like in the name of Christianity, in the name of Christ, more and more really shabby things are being done. Um, That I think a whole lot of people just think, I don't really want to stay in this religion. <laughs> I, I, I'm really having second thoughts about whether I'm going to make it. Uh, and very seldom is this like, yeah, I'm really disillusioned with Jesus. Usually it's people more excited about Jesus than ever, but there's just something about their identity staying part of this, this community that causes real trouble. And so I've been picking that pain up everywhere. Um, and obviously I, it's something I've dealt with literally since I was a child, because Mm -hmm. in my earliest childhood, I cared a lot about science. I thought science was interesting. And I felt Mm -hmm. that my church didn't was against science. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking when I get older, I'll probably have to leave this religion. And, uh, uh, so, you know, from a very young age, that's been an issue for me, but gosh, you then add the issues today, whether it's, you know, somebody 
is a very happy Christian. Everything's going fine. And then their brother comes out as gay and they realize that their Christian community wants them to turn against their brother. Mm. And they think, are you kidding? My brother's the nicest person I know. How could I turn against my brother? And and so suddenly now they're in a, a crisis of religious identity. Yeah. And I'm just picking that up more and more everywhere mm. I turn. So you feel, I mean, that those crisis moments, that disillusionment is not brand new. But mm. but you see that as like the the uh, the frequency and the the consistency of it is like increasing as you're traveling around speaking, meeting people, you see that becoming more and more of a refrain for people. I think so. And I see it in evangelical settings. I see it in Roman Catholic settings. I see it in mainline mm-hmm. Protestant settings. Um, I'll just give you an example. I, I was with a group of Catholic friends uh, on a Zoom call the other night. And, you know, they've been sort of advocates for change in the Catholic Church for a long time. Um, you know, they, they'd be people who think that the church's exclusion of women from leadership is something that is doomed. Eventually they've got to get over that and get to a better Mm. place. Um, And they've been at this, in this struggle for decades, some of them. But when I was with them the other day, I just thought these people are tired. They're, 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 they're just worn down. They just Mm. wonder if it's even worth keeping up the fight, you know? Mm. And so it's different for different groups and it's not just Christians. I, I have to say, you know, I have Jewish friends who are facing a Jewish version of this and Muslim mm. friends facing a Muslim version. So mm. it's, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's, it feels like it's intensifying for a whole lot of reasons we could talk about. Mm. Yeah. I've, when, when Doug was on here and I'm, I, I'm sure I've talked to other people about it, but what's funny is cause I'm in a generation between you know, you and then the younger people yeah. where everything right now is like, well, deconstruction and deconstruction and deconstruction. Yeah. So I'm like, what well, if I talk to people like that and they ask me about deconstruction or it comes up, I can talk about, I know the humanity of that first big paradigm shift, that yeah. first transition of when your belief system, when your lens for the first time is being questioned. I understand the, how that can be traumatic. And, and that is... Yeah in the stages of faith, that is going to be probably the hardest one. Cause it's the first time you're doing anything like that. And it feels like you're questioning everything because you've never done it before, yeah. but also you can have a zoomed out perspective, even if we're talking about evolutionary stages, I'm like, but actually this is just Fowler. We're going from three to four, hopefully five yeah. Wilbur. We're looking from blue. It's like orangey green, or we're looking at the spiral, right? It's just, Oh, this is, that movement is actually just a natural evolutionary jump. And then I I think about that and I kind of laugh because I'm like, Oh, you want a good book for that? Go read Tony Jones, the new Christians, go read does go read one of old Brian's books because a part of how I've seen when, you know, emerging and emerging was, that was like my generation of like, you know, early twenties of like, that's, that's the bad thing, but also like, that's the next step for some people is that those are the guides. And when I look at some people, I'm like, what was happening at a more marginal cultural level at that time is yeah. simply getting closer and closer to the center. That's right. That's so at that I'm... point, what was happening for a small pockets of people in hidden spaces or in their own spaces now is just 
widening and it's actually getting closer to the collective consciousness, the collective experience of people of faith. You know, do you feel that? Because sometimes I'm like, well, the conversations you're having have been happening for a long time, you know, but it's just now it's like, oh, but everyone's talking about it. Well, back then it was just a small group of people, essentially. Yeah. In fact, that's how that's how dis, uh, innovations disseminate, right? They mm. they usually start with a few people out on the margins and exactly as you say, and, and at first they're ignored and then they're mocked and then they're uh, attacked. Uh, but then it, ironically, the, the mocking and attacking draw more attention in some ways. Mm. And, uh, and then more and more people start uh, closer and closer to the center. Yeah. I, uh, I had a, a real surprise. This is over 10 years ago now, but I got an email one day from someone at the Vatican and I, mm. I certainly wasn't expecting that, but uh, someone at the Vatican contacted me and said, I just read one of your books and, wow. uh, I, and basically said, because of where I work, I'm not able to speak freely. Um, but could we have some phone conversations because I just need somebody to talk to. Wow. So, yeah, the, these things spread, and um, uh, uh, and and very often, the parents, the older generation, that's fighting the hardest to defend the status quo. Mm. It's their children that they're driving away from the status quo. Mm. Uh, mm. So, mm. I think all that's that, going on right now. Yeah, you said the person at the Vatican hit you up ten years ago, and they said, "Brian, I read your books, and you're right. Everything must change." <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you a little backstory on that. It, it was my book, A New Kind of Christianity. And the subtitle in English is 10 Questions That Are Transforming the Faith. When they translated it into, Ita- into Italian, the title is 10 Questions the Church is Afraid to Ask. Nice. <laughs> and, nice. and I thought that I thought he was going to be upset with me because it was like, uh, I didn't choose that title. Right, right. Um, but what he said to me is, "You're," he said, "You're exactly right. The church is afraid to ask these questions." Wow! And, and, so, and at that point, you didn't even know that was the subtitle in Italian or the title. <laughs> That's funny. I, I no, I had just heard. I had just heard. Yeah. Mm. So, so in, in this book, the question of the title: Do I stay Christian? And so there is a there's three parts of the book. One is here are the parts of the answer where we're saying no, here's the parts yeah. of that answer where we're saying yes. And the question becomes the how, which it's such a, it's such a brilliant, it's such an important thing to ask the question, how, cause that's something I've thought about as it, cause my wife and I, you know, started church. We've led a church for almost a decade yeah. here. And when I've looked at preaching quite a bit, and you know, when I'm looking at preaching, the majority would be like a white evangelical ish kind of a flavor of it. Cause obviously there's all different kinds of preaching that is happening all the time. And so often I think a lot of preaching talks a little bit about the why is very, very clear on their what, and almost rarely mentions the how. Yeah. So they could say, why is it bad to feel shame? Well, because it keeps you stuck and isolated. Okay, that, that's true. And what is shame? Well, shame is this and that. And then it comes to the how, well, how do we actually be liberated from shame? How do we actually grow? And it's just like, in the end, there's like something you throw in it, like, oh, oh, like read your Bible and pray more. And you're like, <laughs> because the, and that's the brilliance of Brene Brown and what she's popularized is someone who's saying, no, the how out of this is, is vulnerability and it's this and it's yeah. that. And I'm like, oh, well, people don't talk about the how because they don't know. 
you know, that's, that, that's yeah. what I suspect yeah. along the way. So I think having that at the end is such an important thing, but some of the, and some of the, the chapters are, well, here's a part, here are parts of the answer of why it would be no, right? Here's the things mm-hmm. we're saying no to in the question of, do I stay Christian? And you have a list of those mm-hmm. things, different chapters, you know, the loyal company men or institutionalism, you know, how oftentimes Christianity, the real master is money and, and how you say that. So I just want to ask about a couple of those and why it's cl- why it's good to have clarity on what some of those no's are as we're asking these questions. And like you say in the intro, when people are asking the question, do I stay Christian? It's not an abstract, interesting question that you ask at 20 years old with your friends that has no actual teeth. No, this is the question of our that's connected with our actual life and our relationships and our well-being and our community and our all the things that seem seemingly hold our life together. So these are for yourself as well. This is a real question. So what is the we're saying no, you say loyal company men and institutionalism. What do you mean by loyal company men and why is it a healthy thing for us to say no to that right now as followers of Jesus? Probably a, a place where people have seen this work its way out into the headlines uh, in different sectors of the church would, would, would go something like this. Um, over the last centuries, the Roman Catholic Church that has had an a, a all-male celibate, uh, supposed to be celibate priesthood, has had this quiet scandal going on where these supposedly celibate men were sexually abusing people, often children. And when this came to the attention of bishops or people above them in the hierarchy, their first thought wasn't, oh, we got to protect these children. And their first thought wasn't, we've got to deal constructively, constructively with this priest's issues that are leading him to do this. It was, this could bring shame on the organization and we're loyal to the organization. So we have to keep it quiet. Mm. And Protestants have maybe read those headlines and felt superior, but then there's been all the, you know, it, if one mega church after another, I guess Hillsong has been the one that, and, and you find out similar things hap- are happening and it's not old men in uh, clerical collars. It's hip mm. young people with tattoos who are doing the same thing. And, and this sense that you become loyal to this, uh, to your professional guild or loyal to the, to the economic system that's producing income to keep the thing going, that set of loyalty, people tend to think of loyalty as something good, but loyalty sets up conflicts of interest. When you have loyalty to multiple things, now you're forced to make choices and this is one of the deep problems in the Christian faith mm. for individuals. They, they might think that, you know, I go to a priest or a pastor or whatever. And I think this person really cares about me. It's their job to be God's representative, to care about me. Well, yes, but they also are caring about a whole bunch of other things and mm. becoming realistic about those conflicts of interest. That's what I'm trying to get at in this, mm. in that chapter. And that Mm. hurts. It doesn't just hurt. It it hurts the people who are part of the system too. It doesn't just hurt, Mm. you know, the, 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 it hurts the people, the the priests and bishops and all who are having to live with those. I I just had an experience uh, just this week, uh, a Methodist minister said to me, 
um, said, you know, our church has been afraid to take a stand on LGBTQ equality. And he said, I, I, it's not that I'm not willing to lead. I just realized that if I lead, um, a lot of people will leave. And if they leave, I'll have to let go some of my staff. You know, I won't lose my job, but mm. some people will. Mm. And, and so those are the kinds of, uh, balances, you know, balancing acts that people have to deal with. Mm. And it, it just yeah. means it's complicated. Yeah. 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 I, when I mentioned that book, you know, the new Christians with Tony, I yes. think when I was in my early twenties, he was probably the first person who I heard, read or heard say very clearly bureaucracy is bad for the gospel. <laughs> I remember him saying, and, and it's like, that to me is, there is wisdom. That's the, the beauty and power and wisdom of traditions is you have people further along who want to help I, in a, yeah. you know, in a good sense, guide you and support you along the way. The bad part is, is when those institutions turn in on themselves, which appear, it seems really hard that they eventually don't, especially yes. depending on certain degrees of power and money involved. And then the self-preservation and structures continue to get in the way of the flow of the spirit that is expanding and moving yeah. in our world. And yeah. let me ask you a question. Cause even that, that a scenario, you said that Methodist minister, if I say this, this happens, right. There's all kinds of, whether it's leaders or like the loyal soldiers in the church who are helping yeah. not, not consciously and maliciously, like I'm going to be a part of a large conspiracy to perpetuate abuse in the church. Like those people probably aren't thinking that, exactly but, right. but exactly there's a thousand, right. there's a, what I tell people is there's a thousand micro decisions along the way that yeah. is doing that. Even when if they're not, yes. They're not a person with all this malicious intent and they think yes. as a loyal soldier, they're doing good things to protect the brand because they think that preserves the gospel, which, you know, is, which is problematic in the long run. But as a person who has dealt with a lot of criticism as a person who has been, you know, not always celebrated by institutions, you know, yourself, people are afraid of what they're going to lose if they do speak up, you know, positions, relationships, money. But as a person who's been through your, a lot of versions of that, yes, there will be losses, but what does one gain when they commit to yeah. tell the truth and live the truth and surrender those circumstances to God, as opposed to putting them in the hands of others? Like, what do you, yes, people are scared, but for you as a human being, what do you gain along the way when you are speaking the truth? Wow. Well, look, uh, it, it's not like when you are threatened with a loss, the loss is only on one side. Like you might lose a job, but if you keep the job, you might lose your integrity. <laughs> I mean, it, it's kind exactly. of what Jesus said when he said, what good is it to gain the world and lose who you are, lose your soul, lose your essence, mm -hmm. lose your integrity. Um, but one of the things that happens is when you get rejected from one group, that's painful, mm. but you find new friends <laughs> <laughs> and, and sometimes you find out, wow, these people are amazing, you know? Mm. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I you know, I, my wife and I have four uh, children all in their thirties and forties now. Mm. And, but when one of, but two of our kids uh, are LGBTQ mm. and, when my one of my sons came out 
uh, as gay, one of our friends came over and said, this is going to be hard. She said, Mm. it's going to be hard. But she said, you're going to meet people through this who Mm. are going to be so amazing and so wonderful that you're going to be grateful for the rest of your life. And all I can say to that is that is so, so true. We lost some friends who said, because we didn't, you know, uphold the conservative Mm -hmm. traditional viewpoint that now we're bad guys, right? Yeah, we lost some friends and that hurts. Um, Mm -hmm. But my goodness, the amazing, beautiful, fascinating people we've met have been incredible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I'm I'm sure there are those compensations that come all over the place. I mean, to me in those moments, like the only things you ever let go of along the way are things that are getting in the way of you actually being you. And it's like, what do you gain? It's like you, when you gain the, you can gain the, the, as Jesus would say, you can gain the world and lose your soul. But when you're willing to lose the world in the sense of the institutions, the approval, whatever I think I'm supposed to get, it's like, what do you gain? Like, well, you, you, you gain yourself. Yeah. You know, the truth of who you are, not a, not a pedic, not a manicured version that fits in, fits in with the loyal company men, which on which is not going to lead you to the joy in the first place. That's it. That's, that's so well said. Yes. Yeah. I, uh, I told, I think it's, I think it's in this, in the first book, but when I think my wife and I were 24, I might've just finished my undergrad before I started grad school. And maybe I thought around that time, like, you know, in the future, I might, you know, move back to Hawaii where I am now. And we always like wanted to come back or, or eventually wanted to come back. And I remember visiting a church out here. So I had already really started going through my own big paradigm shift, you know, that first big one stages, et cetera. So I'm, I'm there. I'm, I'm, I'm into moving through that. And so we visited a church out here because I heard like, oh, friends are going there. Cool. Like you get a glimpse of maybe if we move back, what is the landscape, et cetera. And my wife and I went there and it was just, the most ridiculous nationalistic magical mythical sermon i've heard and in the end i'm like and there was an altar call in the end and i'm like what are you responding to like what could you possibly like for you know for people like that i'm like i i have respect that you have the audacity like and and the courage to do this, but what are you asking people to say yes to right now? And I remember sitting in the back and when they did the altar call moment, you know how those moments go. And I was sitting there and I was like in just, you know, I was sitting, looking down and I could emotions just started welling up within me. My eyes started welling, filling up with tears, which I'm assuming some of the ushers are like, preacher got another one, you know, another wayward (laughs) son has returned home. But actually it was a moment where just hearing that, yes, you know, whenever we start to see something, the ego can contract because you can see all of the negative things it might cause. Oh, this will affect this relationship. This will affect this. And the ego will contract and want to like return, go back, move forward or move, move back, survive, stay there, whatever it is. And in that moment, it was like, I could see my future where I'm like, I can't be a part of stuff like this. It would be to betray my own integrity. It would be from my perspective to betray the way of Jesus. It would be to betray the spirit that has animates my entire life. And I've surrendered my life to. And I just, with tears, I'm like, there's going to be hard parts of my journey of connections of people. I like that. I won't, there's invitations. I won't get, there's things I won't be a part of. 
And yet I'm like, there is this flow inviting us forward and all of those losses along the way, while they will hurt, you know, you can be cynical and say you didn't care. No, the things will hurt along the way. But if you're trusting that, I'm like, that's what this is. That's why Roar says, you know, the the mystic is the most dangerous one to an institution because they look at an institution and say, you cannot offer me anything the spirit does not give me directly and I can move through. So even for people listening in, as you're responding to those decisions and as you're seeing things, there will be hard things along the way. But when you learn to embrace and accept those and surrender those, what you will discover is more and more of yourself, more and more of the authentic relationships that are not filtered through the institutionalism, which tries to rob them of their honesty and authenticity. So, and as for you, I just know navigating so much of that and to still see life and vibrancy and joy is like, yeah, we gain ourselves. And I just, you know, love to see that. So they thought they got me with altar call and they did, but for reasons they didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I, I can totally picture that. Yeah. And I also can, I, I, I can feel that feeling that you were having. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Another thing, you know, that here's the, here's the, the, do I say Christian here are the reasons why part of that answer is no. So we have loyal company men, we have stuff about money. We have, you know, the white Christian old boys network. And one of them you say, because, because Christianity is a failed religion. Mm-hmm. which is, you know, from a, from a, without any context, a bold statement, which is hilarious. And you, what you say there is because there's a lack of transformation, right? Mm-hmm. How is, how is Christianity failed religion because of a lack of transformation? What are you really getting at? What are you yeah. inviting people to see there? Yeah. Well, that phrase, Christianity is a failed religion. I, the first time I heard anyone say that was a, a Catholic novelist named Walker Percy, mm. probably in the 1970s. And, and he was referring to race. He said Christianity, and he was a committed Christian himself, but he said Christianity in America is a failed religion when it comes to race. Wow. The, the religion did not tell white people that they should love their neighbor as themselves. It failed on the most basic test. Wow. of of recognizing your neighbor in in uh, the black person who is being the black body that was being enslaved and beaten and raped mm. and humiliated day after day mm. after day and mm. people would go to church on sunday and praise god and and go back to it for another week and this wasn't just for 5 years or 10 years it was for hundreds of years this goes on and mm. and and percy was writing you know, 1960s, early 70s, and looking across the South and saying, even though we had civil rights legislation, people's hearts haven't changed. Mm. Um, and so, uh, and and this lack of deep change in ish, in areas where it really counts. If anybody wants to say, um, oh, but we got a lot of people to the altar and they said the sinner's prayer, and then, and then they say, and so it, we don't really care if they maintain their bigotry and racism or not. Mm. I just want to say, uh, sorry, you know, I'm not interested in that. That mm. if if that's how you want to start measuring success, I do not want to be part of that business at all. Mm. Um, and then now, in 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 this moment, um, how many people have really learned to love the earth? Uh, as as a sacred reality that is the creation of the, the creator and and therefore has intrinsic value that's not measured by an economic system. Mm. 
whether it's capitalism or Marxism or whatever, it mm. has intrinsic value. Well, not we're not doing so great on that, mm. right? Um, mm. And so, but then we could even get more personal. And, and, and part of what I think these scandals we've seen in recent years are telling us that often the person, it's, it's a little bit like how you, you began, you know, this, this, um, uh, this podcast, that there are people who have a message, but it's not part of their biography. It, and they're very clever and articulate and great communicators, but it's not integrated with their life. And, mm. uh, and uh, you know, uh, religious leaders who get themselves in trouble, I don't condemn them at all. I, mm. I mean, we all have problems, you know, I, mm. I, I don't feel any sense of superiority. I got my problems and all the rest, mm. but it's this idea that we present this front of here's the guy who's following biblical principles, or here's the guy who's walking in the spirit or whatever the, the different way that it said. Um, and we end up being better at pretending we're transformed mm. than actually having the deep kind of interchange that we need. Mm. Now, look, that's not saying nobody, of course, but, but it's saying that some, that, that when people are leaving Christianity, it's very often because they look around and they say, I don't see it. I don't see the change. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, you, younger people they they the gift is to be around older people who actually are the thing you know mm -hmm. haven't just said it and aren't just the institution like and that's what's tough i think about kids who grow up within it is they learn how to navigate it and just play the yes. game you know and that's a part of yes. my own story that i'm thankful for is i didn't do that because i wasn't aware yes. of evangelical culture as a kid i didn't know about like for me faith was never a moral it wasn't primarily a moral and ethical project it was a pursuit and it was just this direct immediate knowing of god you know and i'm thankful without having to unlearn and un untake off as much as that baggage but the movement hopefully if we talk about first and second half of life but the movement from i am how who others perceive me to just i am who yeah. i am and the humility yeah. Yeah, the humility that's required to embrace that. Oh, this is no, it's just who I am and learning yeah. <laughs> to do that. It's, it's the one thing that actually defines the whole thing, even from preachers who are saying it. And it's the last thing our ego will let go of is to surrender and to make that move mm -hmm. towards authenticity, you know, cause then it's just what? this humble becoming. It's so you know? true. One, one of, as you say that, uh, Kevin, it makes me think of one of my dear friends who, uh, has been through some rough times. He's been publicly humiliated and he's had some rough stuff. But he said to me some years ago, he said, Brian, guys like you and me, we were both preachers at the time. Guys like you and me have to make a decision. Do we want to appear better than we are or do we want to be better than we appear? Mm. And I, that mm. question has just stayed with me because the temptation is to have the appearance of whatever transformation. Right. But the deep to, to actually say, I would like to be authentic and I would like to see this change going on in, in the deepest part of me. And, and at the, and I can be disappointed in the amount of transformation, but the thing I won't do is pretend I'm more transformed than I am. <laughs> Let mm. me try to just be honest about it. You know, <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, there's the parts of the answer you say no to so many of the important things, naming some of the bigger picture reasons that people will resonate with of why they're moving on, why the answer would be an emphatic no for so many people right now. Do I stay Christian? Then there's parts of the answer where we're saying yes. Right. And one of those, I feel like you maybe were one of the first people that really got me considering something like this in my twenties, which just gives you such a different historical and future oriented perspective as you say, well, one of the parts of the answer why we're saying yes, do I stay Christian is because it would be a shame to really leave a religion in its infancy. And that's, you know, people have built on that and people write other things about it, but it's really a fascinating thing to think about. And I think a meaningful thing to think about when you look at the future of the planet and to think, well, it's possible that we are in the early stages, you know, that I'm, and you can zoom out a bit more and say, well, this is the early church still, you know, I remember first yeah. thinking about that and that staying with me. So what, when you say, well, it would be a shame to leave a religion in its infancy, what does that mean? And why does that have the power to kind of help ground us where we are within this tradition, within this way of Jesus? Yeah. Well, that I think one of the problems is that uh, that when Christian a Christian community denomination movement, whatever, presents itself as saying we've got it right, we are biblical, we are spirit filled, we are this or that, <laughs> um, and then we begin to see all the problems, then it's almost like we only have a choice. They they've given us the terms that that they are promising us. And so we say, well, I don't want to be part of that, you know, uh, because you're saying you're something and it's not so great. But, um, but I think there's, if we were to widen our time frame, just as you were saying, Kevin, and we were, we encounter a community and we say, boy, they have a lot of problems, but I think there's some promise there of something mm -hmm. that could be a lot better. And they seem to be open to that better future coming. And they, they um, so I'm not joining a group that I, that tells me it's great. They're telling me they're a mess and they're telling me they're just figuring things out and they're telling me they don't have all the answers. But when I'm with them, I sense there's a lot that could happen here. So look, all of us who are parents know this, um, you know, there are days when you're two or three year old can really press all your buttons and just say, <laughs> this kid is on my very last nerve. Um, but you step back and you say, he's only three, you know, I didn't even do that till I was 29. <laughs> I can't expect <laughs> them to do it right now. That took me seven years of not for my 22 to 29 to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. So that's, I mean, a huge part of it is just having a bigger time frame. Yeah. And, mm. and, and being able to say, and, and what that also allows us to do is we're giving Christianity permission to do something that many Christians won't give themselves permission. And that is to evolve mm. because so many Christians inherited this idea that we were perfect at the beginning. And our goal is to maintain that perfection. Um, and we might Just, go down a little bit, slip down the slippery slope. We got to climb back to the top of the slippery slope. This is saying the opposite. This is saying we're starting at the bottom of the slope and we might climb a little bit and then we slip back down, but we're, we continue climbing and, and it helps us say, uh, 
it, it, it helps us give permission for Christianity to keep growing and developing and evolving and to say it, um, whatever it can be is open. It, 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 it could become something much better. It could become something much worse, but it, it it's not finished. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's so good too, because if we do that, then we don't have to do and also we don't have to do intellectual and mental gymnastics to try to justify and avoid the shadow of the church's history. Yes. Yes. It's like, yeah, that's all. It's like for my own book, I was on a podcast with a guy who was, he wasn't antagonistic in his in an oppositional energy sense, but he's not a Christian. He was just, he's like giving me crap the whole way. He's a funny guy. You know, he's like, well, what about this? And what about this? As we're talking about it, it was a great conversation. And he would, you know, talk about things in the Old Testament, talk about what this is like violence or whatever. And I'm like, it's people growing. Yeah. You know, it's those. Yes, of course, from our perspective, we would look back yeah. and think that's barbaric. And that's, you know, the wisdom of stages as well of human beings evolving. But like, I'm not denying that shadow. I'm saying, yes, people at that point were thinking things that were very unhelpful and very magical, yes. mythical or whatever it is. And then what you see is this slow movement forward. And yeah. I think specifically with the church, there is that, but there is a big part of those loyal soldiers of institutionalism that refuse to ever critique, yes. you know, yes. the, the perfect father or whatever it is when, yes. when it's, it's the church wants to keep being reborn again and again and again. You yes, know, and you don't yes, have to deny yes. the shadow, just like we don't have to deny our own shadow. You know, we have to observe it and embrace it and accept it, you know, like with the transcending and including like, no, that was a part of the story. And I used to think that. And yeah, yeah they did used to do that. And, you know, as <clears throat> as an I'm a, I'm a five on the Enneagram. So being a lead pastor is like my worst nightmare. Because, you know, in my default personality, my ideal thing is let me just be in my own cave study forever, come out once in a while, share my grand ideas, and then go back when the real relationships begin. <laughs> and that was, you know, I think why unconsciously a part of me avoided leadership for a long time, because I just wasn't ready to accept the incarnational messiness of, of an embodied life. And, yeah. but for that the the whole thing is for me with leaders with young people with people right now is but there have to be people in an embodied way who keep trying to recreate this in a more beautiful way you know yes. and yes. because like you're saying if it is in its infancy we have to allow it to grow and it requires the courage and the continuous risks emotional and relational risks of people to get involved and to risk failure yes. to keep recreating this and helping you know helping this new, the new forms and the new structures be born as the spirit is evolving and allowing the spirit, the freedom yes. to do that, et cetera. And that's something for me, I, you know, I've tried to do in my own way for a decade, you know, I want people to keep doing while the questions of, do I stay Christian? It's easy to walk away. And there's science. Yes. Walking away from institutions, walking away from your church, there's wisdom. And that's probably the best thing a lot of times for people. <laughs> yes. But there are, to me, I'm like, there has to be people who are not just seeing this, but are actually going to keep creating it for the future. Yes. And obviously so much 
we could talk about, do I stay Christian? A guide for the doubters, the disappointed, and the disillusioned. May 24th by Brian McLaren. Is that your 12th book? 11th or 12th? Do you uh, know? It's more than that. It's more than that. But yeah, I don't want to think about it. There have been too many. <laughs> nice. So please, um, just like the last time he was on here talking about faith after doubt, and now to even narrow that question more specifically, which is such a profound, it's like you're asking the question beneath the questions for so many people. Yeah. It's this and it's that. It's like, but do I, do I stay? Do I do this? What does that really mean if I really start to be honest about that? And like the other books, not just Brian asking the profound questions, but I think offering hopeful visions and he and these broader human visions of this isn't just about people in a rigid way wondering about the church it's actually human be beings wondering what it means to be fully human in life yes, you know because yes, the specific yes. always broadens us out to the universal and i think you do that in your writing so so well so for not just for being clear on the no but for a hopeful vision of the future continue to or begin to dive into the work of Brian. I mean, you could go back 20 years and I think Brian was saying things around then that are so relevant and speak so profoundly mm -hmm. to the experience so many people are going through today. So tap in with him wherever that is. Brian, is there any best place for people to follow along or connect with you along the way right now? Well, my website is brianmclaren.net and they can find connections to social media and my books and everything else. A podcast that I do with Center for Action and Contemplation. And, yes. um, and can I just say how happy I am to think that your book and my book both uh, get unleashed on the world this month. So a oh, uh, pleasure on, to be now. with you and, and so happy that we're in this important work together. Yeah. Yeah. And no, I appreciate you saying that. And also it was a pleasant surprise for me. I didn't even know this, but my buddy, Phil, who I mentioned that the night before the interview sent me a screenshot and he's like, who is this guy? And I didn't realize that my name and the podcast were in the resources section. So man, that's just so cool to see, man. I appreciate you doing that. And you know, moving into this next chapter of my own life, you know, all little things like that, that are, feel like small steps towards the book are actually important steps towards an entire next chapter of my life. So I, I receive those things for what they are and I'm really grateful for that. So yeah, Brian, until the next time we speak, man, always grateful for the times we have and everything I said in the intro, I meant, you know, I think for people like who are closer to my age, approaching 40 in their forties, looking ahead and wanting to keep not just talking, but keep building and creating, you know, you, have been and are one of those voices for us to keep having more clarity and hopefully more courage to keep actually living this life out. So thank you. Everything you've done, the things you've lost along the way with your own old boys networks and whatever. Um, <laughs> one, I, I sense and I hope that your own experience of joy and of peace and to take it all in yourself is there when I, I believe it is. And also everything you've done has helped, you know, pave the way for people to keep building and growing like myself. So thank you for your, your thank courage you. as a writer. And most importantly, the courage as a human being to risk, keep to risking, to keep risking, just growing and becoming. Cause that's what it, how Thanks. it begins. So thank you for that, sir. What a pleasure. Thanks, man. Thanks, Brian.